I tell the staff we have a staff meeting uh, every Tuesday. If we ever have, you know, we do four services a week. If we ever do all four services in a week perfectly, then I think it's time for the rapture. So <laughs> the Lord will come for us. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Pastor John's got some Bibles. Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. We're going to begin reading at verse 26. We've been doing a verse-by-verse study in Luke's Gospel. We find ourselves in chapter 23. As you recall, as we went into chapter 23 last week, that uh, Jesus, um, he's been bound up. He was arrested. A detachment of troops would come and led by Judas, the betrayer. They came with swords and clubs and weapons and torches. And they came and bound Jesus up there in the garden called Gethsemane. He would be led across the Kidron Valley, and he would go before the religious leaders, three trials, first before Annas, who was the power behind the high priestly office. And then he would go in the middle of the night before Caiaphas, the official high priest that year, and before the religious council. And there in the middle of the night, they beat him, they mocked him, they condemned him to death. He would be put into a holding chamber. And then as soon as it was day, as Dr. Luke writes in verse 66 of chapter 22, that they would bring him back before the religious council for the official meeting because the one during the night was illegal. And so condemning him to death, they know they have to take him to Rome. So as we entered into chapter 23 last week, that early in the morning, that the whole council is what we read in the scriptures, would rise up and take Jesus, who had been beaten and bound up, and he's black and blue and bleeding, to go to Pilate's palace. It was really built and known as Herod's palace, because he built it. Pilate would use it during that time to come to Jerusalem during the times of the feast. And he's there, and all of a sudden he hears this clamoring of the religious leaders that are outside his gate, and they're yelling for him to come out. They won't dare go in because they don't want to defile themselves and not be able to celebrate the Passover. And they come and they say, you need to take this man. He is one that is telling the nation, it's a good thing we found him doing this for your sake, but he's telling the people not to pay taxes to Rome, and he presents himself as a king in opposition to Caesar. And of course, they were trumped up charges, and they were lying. And and it is Pilate that we were told in the Gospels that knew that they brought him because of envy. And it is Pilate that would question Jesus. He found no fault in him. And as the religious leaders and the crowd is beginning to grow, that he is on the political hot seat with Tiberius because of bad decisions that he had made previously. He knows that one miscalculation and he could lose his power. Uh, He sees that people are getting restless and so he begins to compromise. When he said that I find no fault in this man, he should have released Jesus. But hearing as they're, they're getting more angry and he's perverting the nation from Galilee to Judea, that Pilate hears that word Galilee and he says, oh, well, Herod the Tetrarch, he's here in Jerusalem. He rules over the Galilee area. I'm going to send him off to Herod because Pilate is just wanting to get Jesus off of his hands. So Jesus then goes to his fifth trial, three before the religious leaders, then Pilate in the fifth trial, as he goes before Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas. And Herod was very excited to see Jesus. Matter of fact, we are told that he was exceedingly glad. And, and he 
questioned Jesus with many words. He had been hearing about the miracles of Jesus when he was up in the Galilee. And so he's kind of wanting Jesus to do a miracle. Hey, can you do some kind of trick? And he's not taking Jesus seriously. Jesus said absolutely nothing to Herod. And Herod and his men would mock Jesus. They put a, a robe on him, send him back to Pilate. And so all of a sudden, Jesus is having his sixth trial before Pilate. And Pilate, he begins to compromise. He, he, he is in a very sensitive and volatile situation that's on his hands. The religious leaders and the crowds continuing to be stirred up. And, and so he decides that, well, what I'll do is bring this insurrectionist, this robber, this, this murderer, Barabbas, and I'll stand him before the people. And as customary, as the Romans would do every Passover, as a gesture of goodwill to the Jews, they would release a prisoner at their choice. And so there's Barabbas and there's Jesus. They're at the Gabbatha, that is the pavement. And there is Pilate, and as he's sitting at the judgment seat, all of a sudden he's amazed because he hears the cries of the people saying, crucify Jesus, release Barabbas. And, and he's puzzled and he's, uh, he's amazed. And he's saying to the crowds, what? What has he done? And as all of this is going on, as he's sitting at the judgment seat, all of a sudden one of the servants comes up and whispers and punches Pilate's ear. It's an urgent message from your wife. And your wife says, have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. She was saying, let there be no negative thing between you and this just man, Jesus. And it's a message that we need to hear. Let there be no negative thing between you and Jesus, nothing between you and Jesus. And it's a remarkable thing that she says. And I think it's the heart of the Lord to all of us. Let there be no compromise between you and Jesus. Get rid of it. And Pilate here is so troubled. He's so conflicted. Uh, he sees, as Matthew records, the tumult that is rising. And he finally gives in to the voices of the crowd. And as we put the gospel accounts together, we know that Pilate washed his hands before the multitude and said, I'm innocent of the blood of this just man. But here's the problem. You cannot just wash your hands of Jesus and be done with it. You cannot be neutral. And they take Jesus, the Roman soldiers, and they make this crown of thorns and they pound it on his head. You're a king? And they're mocking him. Those Judean thorns that you can still see in Jerusalem today. They're about three or four inches long. And they are hard as nails and they are sharp as razors. And as they pounded that crown on his scalp, I'm sure it lacerated his scalp. And then they punched him. They beat him. Isaiah says they pulled out the beard. He was unrecognizable. He was marred more than any other man. And then they put him to that post and they put that cat of nine tails on his back. That cat of nine tails, that scourge that would have a leather strap and then little leather straps coming out from it. And at the end of each one of those leather their straps, there would be a piece of glass, a piece of bone, that when he, that, that executioner, that, that one who had the scourge in his hand, as he laid it on Jesus' back, it would just kind of grab onto his back, and then he'd give it a twist, and the whole chunks of skin would come out. Jesus went through that. Many men would die from the scourging, and then they would usually turn you around, and they would scourge you on the front side. 
And here is Jesus again as we see him going through this. They put a purple robe on him to mock him. And he's brought out once again at that time before Pilate and the crowd. And Pilate says, Hedgy homo. He says, look, the man. Behold, the man. Look at what they've done to him. And they would release Barabbas, and now Jesus is delivered to be crucified as foreordained before the foundation of the world. Throughout the Gospels, particularly John's Gospel, you'll read that Jesus would say, it is not my hour, it is not my hour, until he comes to Jerusalem here, and he's going to die for the sins of the world, and now he says, it's my hour. This is why he was born. When we celebrate Christmas, as we celebrate that Jesus born as the babe of Bethlehem, there is a reason for that. And that's what we're reading about here as now as we read our text in Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 26. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and the breasts which never nurse. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? In verse 32, and there were also two others, criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. In verse 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast his lots. A familiar portion of scripture to most of us, if not all of us that are here this morning. But verse 33 is they would come to that place called Calvary, Calvarium. Calvary is the Latin word, Golgotha in Hebrew tongue. It means the place of the skull. So if people ask you where you go to church, you can tell them, I go to Skull Chapel, and they'll think you're more weird than what you really are. But it's a remarkable scene that is here. As Jesus has led down the narrow streets of Jerusalem, down the Via Della Rosa, and there's a multitude of people that are lining the streets. Remember that this is Passover, and the city is packed out. They believe at this time during Passover that there be two million people that are in the city of Jerusalem and camping out on the hillsides to celebrate the feast. And Jesus here is the streets would be lined with people. It's crowded. It's in the morning. And he would carry the cross beam of the cross. And in that crowd, Luke tells us that there are women who mourned and lamented for him and in his sufferings. He says, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children because the day's going to come. When they're going to cry out to the mountains and hills, fall on us and cover us. And of course, Jesus is making reference to that time that we've talked about quite extensively. That about 40 years later, the Titus Vespasian and the Roman legions came and destroyed Jerusalem. We know that Josephus, the historian, tells us that over a million Jews were killed in Jerusalem at that time. And nearly 100,000 were taken away as slaves. And as we come to this place, Calvary, it is a place of execution that was on top of a mountain, Mount Moriah. And and it's the same place that 2,000 years prior to this time, the Genesis chapter 22 tells us that Abraham took his son, as God told him to. Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. 
and offer him as a sacrifice to me. So Abraham took his son and put the wood of the sacrifice on his back, and they walked up that mountain together. And as Isaac is walking with his father, he asked him, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And his father said, God will provide for himself the lamb. And as most of you know the story, that when Abraham got to the top of the mountain, that as he built that altar and laid Isaac down on the altar and lifted up that knife and was going to plunge it into his chest, that the Lord said, stop, Abraham. Now I know that you fear me. And the one who was called the friend of God, there was a ram that was in the thicket. And and we know that the Lord would tell Abraham that this place is the Lord will provide. Matter of fact, Abraham called it, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And 2,000 years later, here's God the Father as he watches his only son, whom he loved, walked up that same exact hill with the wood of the sacrifice on his back. And this time there's no stopping it. Because God is providing the Lamb of God to provide for us forgiveness of sin and salvation. That's why Jesus came. In the mount it shall be provided, Mount Calvary. And it is the place where he's going to die for sinful humanity, for your sins and my sins. And I am thoroughly convinced as he walked down the narrow streets of Jerusalem that he was thinking about every single one of you. It was you that was on his heart and on his mind. And as they pinned him to that cross, he was thinking about you. He knew that you would be here on this November Sunday morning, 2017, 2,000 years later. And he says, I love you very much. And I went to the cross to die for you because of my love for you, to provide forgiveness, to bring you in the right relationship with the Father, for you to come into a kingdom that will have no end, for you to be born again and have a new beginning. And most of us, we know this scene here that there are two criminals that are also led to that place of Calvary as they are crucified with Jesus, one on the right side of him, one on the left side. And Luke tells us more about those two in the chapter. But there's one individual that I carefully want to look at in this whole scene. His name is mentioned here back in verse 26, that as they led Jesus away, then they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Simon, a Cyrenian, uh, all of the synoptic gospels mention him. Cyrene, the city itself, is modern-day Tripoli in Libya in northern Africa. Now, at this time, there was a strong Hellenistic Jewish community in Cyrene. It was there from the time of Alexander the Great, It lasted up until this time and was there even through the early church. They generally, the Jews from there, were wealthy because they were involved in trade and in business. And Simon is no doubt coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And this may have been a -a once-in-a-lifetime journey for him. Because it's a long journey from Cyrene. If you travel by boat, you would go 700 miles through the Mediterranean Sea. You would come to the port of Joppa, that port that you read about in the Bible. That's where Jonah went, to Joppa, you recall. When he was told to go to Nineveh to preach, he gets in Joppa to get on a boat to go the opposite way to Tarsus. And we know that God dealt with him. 
You see, Joppa was that place that they would take the cedar timbers from up in Tyre and Sidon, up north where Lebanon is today, and it would float them down the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and bring them to the port of Joppa, and then they would bring them up to build the first temple that Solomon was building. It's the same place where Peter is that he's at the tanner's house overlooking the sea there, and he has a vision that God gives to him, which would eventually lead Peter to bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And many Jews that were traveling from afar, they were afraid to sail, and I think with good reason. I mean, would you get on a wooden boat 2,000 years ago with the captain saying, oh, you have nothing to worry about. We're going to be just fine because boats sank back then. And we know that because Paul, as he's writing 2 Corinthians in about 56 AD, that he writes about his ministry. And he said, at that time that I was shipwrecked three times in a night and a day, I was in the deep. That wasn't the last time that Paul ended up sinking in a boat. We know at the end of the book of Acts, about five years after he writes 2 Corinthians, that he's in a boat going to Rome for his imprisonment. And you know the story how he was in a storm in that boat for two weeks and finally the, broke, the boat broke apart and he goes floating up on the island of Malta. 700 miles by sea. If he traveled by land, it was 1,000 miles. It would be very dangerous and difficult, very expensive. Can you imagine if you left here walking a thousand miles to go to Southern California? And we know that the Cyrenians had a synagogue in Jerusalem on Pentecost, that is in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, among the crowds, the Cyrenians are mentioned. You go to Acts chapter 6, verse 9, it tells us that those are the synagogue of the freemen, Cyrenians disputing with Stephen the deacon. Acts chapter 11, when persecution was spreading in Jerusalem and Judea, as some of the men from Cyrene went as far as Antioch and Syria to plant the church there, which was really where the, the gospel really began to spread amongst the Gentiles. And what is interesting, when you go to Acts chapter 13, that when the prophets and the teachers of the church are praying and ministering to the Lord, they would send Paul and Barnabas out on their first missionary journey. But listed there in the church is Simeon of Niger. Niger in the Latin means black. And no doubt a black man from northern Africa. He was also with Lucius of Cyrene. So many Bible commentators have suggested that Simeon is this Simon here that is before us in Luke chapter 23, carrying the cross of Jesus. We don't know for sure, but we do know this for sure, that Mark, when he writes his gospel from Rome, mentions in chapter 15, verse 21, that they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now that's significant, so... It is believed that Alexander and Rufus were well known in the early church. It's like Marcus saying, Simon of Cyrene, you know. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. You know his sons. And in John's gospel, John was the last one to write his gospel towards the end of the first century. John is writing during a time that the emperor Domitian is bringing heavy persecution against the Christians. Domitian hated Christians. And he's burning them at the stake. He's feeding them to the lions. So John doesn't mention Simon in this account here or his family. And I think perhaps it may be to protect them. Now, church tradition tells us that Simon's son, Alexander, was martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. 
1941, as you read uh, about these guys before Israel becomes a nation, archaeologists, it's interesting, are digging in the southern end of the Kidron Valley, just south of of Jerusalem, just across where the city of David was. And and it wasn't written until about 1964 that they found a long, uh, a, a, a large tomb, that is, of Cyrenian Jews and one of the ostraries, those were the boxes that held the bones, they found a bunch of them. There was one that was larger than the others, and on both sides of the box was inscribed Alexander, the son of Simon. Romans chapter 16. When Paul is ending that epistle and and greeting 26 different individuals, in verse 13 he writes, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. So the wife of Simon is mentioned there. It really is such an incredible, amazing story because here is a man who is from North Africa. He's going to go to the Passover, travels all this way, expends all the energy. It's very expensive probably so excited, you know he's excited. If any of you have gone to Israel with us on our trips, the highlight is is when we make our way up to Jerusalem, and it's so exciting, and then you have those songs of the ascents from Psalm 120 to 134, and Psalm 122, the song of the ascents reads that, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord, and our feet have been standing within your gate, O Jerusalem. And here he finally makes it to Jerusalem, And God has a divine appointment for him on this day at this time with Jesus. You see, Mark tells us that Jesus is crucified at the third hour. It's in the morning. And Simon, he's coming out of the country. In other words, he's he's passing by. He's coming out of the country, coming into the city, as many were, because they were camping out. There was no room in the city. All the private homes were all jam-packed, and so they would go and camp out in the hills around Jerusalem. And he's coming into the city, excited. It's a big day. Finally, it's Passover. And, And all of a sudden, coming out of the city, there's this large crowd Women lamenting, perhaps a satyrian on a horse leading a procession of three people, two criminals and one that is so badly beaten he's unrecognizable and they're carrying a cross. And all of a sudden Simon finds himself in the middle of this and all of a sudden this one who's beaten so badly falls right in front of him. Now, we can read this, and again, perhaps you've read it many times, and we can think that, you know, it would have been kind of cool to be there, to, to be Simon, to be the one, uh, to carry the cross of Jesus up to, to Calvary. There was only one person in all of human history to do this. But I want us to look at it perhaps from Simon's perspective. He comes all this way. He comes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, he, he has this long journey, and finally it comes, and he sees this procession as he's coming into the city, and, and all of a sudden there's these people lamenting, and these women, and he, he's probably, as he sees Jesus, he's thinking, those Romans, they are so cruel. Look at what they did to this one. He's unrecognizable. And all of a sudden, Simon, in the middle of this scene, Jesus claps right next to him. 
And Simon then feels the tip of a spear from one of the Roman soldiers and this rough voice saying, you, you carry this man's cross. You see, it was called the Garion Rite. If a Roman soldier put the tip of his spear or sword on your shoulder, he could tell you, and you had to carry his pack or burden, and you had to do it for a mile. And when this happened to Simon, he knows that he is compelled, even as Mark says, that he was compelled to carry that cross. He has to do it or he's in big trouble. They were all familiar with it. They were familiar when Jesus said, if they compel you to go one mile, you go two. Now, Simon has to get underneath that cross. And it means that as he gets underneath that cross, it means that Jesus' blood is going to be on him. And he's going to be defiled so that he cannot celebrate the Passover. That would disqualify him according to the Old Testament. And that's the whole reason why he came, wasn't it? He knows that the Old Testament scripture says, curses anyone who hangs on a tree. And as he is pulled from that crowd out of everyone by the Roman soldiers, he would be humiliated. And he's probably thinking, why me? God, why me? I spent all of this time and money to come here to celebrate your feast, and this is what happens, and now I miss the Passover? But you see, he was closer to the Passover than any other man that had ever lived. He was closer to the Passover than Moses. He was closer to the Passover than any priest in the temple precincts. Because he was face to face with the Passover lamb of God. And as he reaches underneath that cross, something happens that in an incredible, very beautiful way. In all of this ugliness, as Simon reached out for that cross, I just suspect, I just suspect that Jesus, who was so bloodied and bruised and swollen, that Simon could see still into his eyes. And Jesus looked at him with those eyes of love coming from a man that was marred more than any other man. And something began to happen in his heart. Something began to happen and stir in Simon that even though he doesn't understand that he is in the epicenter of God's eternal plan of salvation and he carries Jesus' cross through the Damascus gate to the top of the mount the place of execution. It was a terrible place. It smelled of stench, of death. And a large crowd is behind him. And the religious leaders are continuing to jeer and mock Jesus. And I imagine one of the soldiers just pushed Simon aside. And they take those spikes and they put Jesus on that cross. And they take the spikes and they drive it through his hands and through his feet. And then they lift that cross up and it slides through the socket and slam. And he would cry out in great pain. They pierced my hands and my feet. And all of my bones are out of joint. David would write a thousand years earlier in Psalm 22. And I think that Simon stayed to watch all of this and he hears the words of our Lord say, Father, forgive them 
for they know not what they do. And in the language, a lot of language experts say that Jesus was saying that over and over. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Incredible. And Jesus had said to Nicodemus there in John chapter 3, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And what is going on in Simon's mind, what's going on in his heart is absolutely amazing. And he hears the sayings of Jesus. And then at noon, it goes dark for three hours. And at the end of that darkness, all of a sudden, the words cry out from the cross, Te telestai. It is finished. And then there's a great earthquake. And Simon begins to realize that something huge is going on here. That Rome is not in control. Rome can't make the sun go dark for three hours and can't cause an earthquake and for the veil to, to rent in half in the temple. So, so why do we look at Simon so carefully this morning? Because I think that as we read about him, we can read this one verse and we can think that's the end of the story for him. But it's not. It's just the beginning. Because you see, Simon wouldn't just carry the cross of Jesus to Calvary, to Golgotha, but he would carry his cross back to his home, to Cyrene. He would carry into his home his cross, into his marriage, and into his kids' lives, and into his service to God, so much so that he is known very well in the early church very much involved perhaps in the church of Antioch. One of his sons becomes the bishop in Spain and one becomes a martyr for Jesus Christ. He carries his cross a thousand miles back home and he tells his wife, I can imagine as he comes home, how was the Passover? You wouldn't believe it. What happened? And his boys would be young at that time, and he would set them on his lap. He would say, let me tell you about this Jesus. I carried his cross. He was beaten so badly. But I looked into his eyes of love, and he hung on that cross. And the sun all of a sudden was darkened, and the earth shook. And he cries out, it is finished, and he died and he was put into a tomb. And then we heard three days later, he rose from the grave and that tomb is empty. And we read this and many of us think, oh, how wonderful it would to be there, to, to, to be the one to carry his cross. I don't know, maybe it's just me that thinks that, but it's an amazing story. But as I consider it, that we need to remember that Simon carried that cross for the rest of his life. And you and I are called to do the same thing, to look at our Savior and to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and to follow after him. Here is Simon of Cyrene as he comes into the city of Jerusalem, and all of a sudden this procession is coming at him, a huge crowd. He finds himself in the midst of the crowd, and a man beaten like no one has ever been beaten before falls in front of him, and the tip of the spear goes on his shoulder, and Simon had to do something that he didn't want to do that he didn't want to do. And none of us get to do what Simon did in the physical sense. Of all of human history, God chose him to carry Jesus' cross to Calvary. But I do want to remind us of this. 
that you are the only one that can carry your cross for Christ, putting yourself to death that is dying to self and following him daily. And I want to remind all of us that a crossless Christianity doesn't change anyone or anything. A crossless Christianity doesn't change anyone or anything. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 tells us that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He has a path for you. And are you willing to humble yourself? Am I willing to humble myself and do what our flesh does not want to do? To die to our thing and to our selfishness and living for self, deny self and pick up our cross and follow after him. Husbands, are you willing to carry your cross into your marriage and to love your wife as Christ loves the church, to live with her in an understanding way? How are you going to respond when your wife puts the tip of the spear on your shoulder and said, will you please lead us? Will you lead me and the kids spiritually? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to carry your cross when it comes to your children? Or you just yap at them? Get in the car. We're going to church. So we do on Sunday. Or do you say to your kids, to your grandkids, Oh, I prayed for you today, this morning. The Lord put you on my heart because I love you and the Lord loves you. And I know he has such a wonderful plan for you and he wants to work so much in your life. And let me tell you what the Lord means to to me. And you spend time with them, talking about the things of the Lord, presenting them before the Lord, being an example of the Lord in your own life. Do you carry your cross when it comes to ministering to others that are linked to you in your life as you talk with them, in your conduct, in your behavior, in your speech, in your love? And if you have difficulties surrendering to him, then I want to give you a simple suggestion. Will you this week, will you, in the days ahead, in the especially as we get to Thanksgiving and the Christmas holidays that get so busy, if you're having a hard time surrendering to him, will you sit at the foot of the cross? And will you look into his eyes? And will you see his love for you? Because he loves you and he was thinking about you and he has, wants to save you and he has a wonderful plan for you. He wants so much to make your life count for him, to give you joy, to give you that peace, to give you real fulfillment and satisfaction. And listen, will you carry your cross into your home, into your marriage, to your kids, into the classroom, to whoever it may be, Because you're the only one that can carry your cross in your life, putting yourself to death, dying to self. I don't want to talk to them. They bug me. I don't want my friends to think I'm some kind of Jesus freak. 
I don't want my faith to be known because then I get ridiculed at work, whatever the excuses may be. I was reading of one man over 100 years ago. He owned a store selling shoes, and he had a young man working for him, and the Lord put on his heart to to witness to him, to share with him, and he's kind of like, ah, guy. Finally, he did. The young man accepted Christ. His name was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, if you know his story, he touched two continents with the gospel. You don't want to talk to that person? You don't want to witness to them? You don't want to share with them? You want to hide your faith from them? You don't want to minister to your kids in a way, in a godly way, or to your wife? You want to ignore them? I'm just going to hand them over to social media. You live your life thinking that the politicians are going to fix everything? I don't think there's a single person in this room that thinks that. How are you living your life? How am I living my life? And we talk about change in our nation and change in our community and in our families. It's going to begin with you. It's going to begin with you. When you go home, it's going to change in the workplace, in the workplace that you're praying for those that you work alongside of. When you're being that light to them, it's going to begin to change as you are being the light of Jesus Christ and a witness in how you live your life because you are saying that I boast in Christ crucified even as Paul did. And Lord, I'm going to deny myself, pick up my cross, and follow after you. And he does not say that so you will be miserable in life. He says that, that you will experience abundant life. Listen, you're not going to find it in the world. And if you're trying to do that, through living for yourself, and I'm going to do my own thing, and I'm going to chase after, you know, sin and carnality and the drugs and the partying and all this, you are going to be empty and in bondage. Not because Pastor Jeff said so, because the Word of God says so. He has so much for you. Will you pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow after him? That's what Simon did. For a thousand miles, he went back home. He says, you won't believe how my life has changed because I looked into the eyes of my Savior and I pray that you would do the same thing. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time in your word and the story that we're familiar with. But, Lord, we can brush over it, not really consider it. And what my prayer and hope is right now, if there's anyone that is here, I know that there's people listening on live stream. I know that there's people that are going to hear it on the radio later, that there are those in the coffee shop and in the sanctuary, that if you're here and you don't feel you're right with God, you know the Lord is convicting you. And he's brought you here to tell you that he loves you, that he went to that cross to die for you, to die for your sins. And he rose again from the grave and he validated what he did on Calvary's cross. And will you come to him for salvation if you've never done that? Because you can't save yourself. And, and you can't be good enough. 
And don't think that you've sinned so much that he can't forgive you. He died for every single one of your sins. And now all you have to do is call upon him. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, to recognize that you are a sinner separated from God, and to repent, that is, turn to Jesus. And whoever believes in his heart the Lord Jesus and confesses with his mouth that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You come in faith, recognizing your need for him as your personal Lord and Savior. Today is the day of salvation if you've never done that. And if you're here hearing this message, you pray right where you are, Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I am a sinner. I know that. And I believe you died on that cross for me. And you're alive, speaking to my heart. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life right now to be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for dying for me. I want to walk with you and I want to know you and I thank you for this new beginning and I want to now carry my cross because I've seen that you went to the cross for me. Thank you for hearing my prayer in Jesus' name. And if anybody here in the sanctuary where I can see, if you prayed that prayer, will you just put your hand up and put it back down? Anybody at all? God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you else. There are those in the coffee shop, others that are listening, and I just want to pray for those who are making decisions for Christ, anybody else at all. Lord, I thank you for the work that you've done in this place this morning. And I pray that those who have made commitments for you, that Lord, that you would just fill them with your spirit and with your love. They would understand there's a new beginning now. Lord, continue to learn of your incredible love. And for all of us, that we would take our cross, deny ourselves, and follow after you. That's the way of abundant life, a life of fulfillment, of satisfaction, and real purpose. Because you have works that you foreordained before the world even came. Because you knew all about us, that we should walk in them. And Lord, I pray you bless everyone here this morning, that we would go out here encouraged in every way. So we thank you. Lord, help us be that light to others as we go our way this week, in our homes, in our workplaces, to our families, in this classroom, wherever it might be.